Hello, friends, and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. I'm your host, Desiree Nielsen, registered dietitian, cookbook author, and food nerd, here to help you sort fact from internet fiction and make wellness an inclusive, positive space. Because, you know, taking care of yourself should actually feel good. So tell me, does your gut feel good right now? If you're like many of us, you've probably got something up with your gut, whether it's reflux, constipation, or maybe even IBS. If so, you want to buckle in for this episode with Andrea Hardy, registered dietitian and gut health guru. She got the gut health bug literally after she got IBS following a case of norovirus when she was in university, and now she's one of the leading voices in digestive health nutrition. In this episode, we talk all about how Andrea got into dietetics, normalizing everyday gut stuff like gas and bloating, and the not-so-everyday gut stuff like fecal microbiota transplants. Yep, that's just what you think it is. Poop transfers. If you're interested in how the gut works or wondering how to get to the bottom of your gut issues, you're going to want to stay tuned. And I am so excited for our first ever sponsor here on the All Sorts Podcast, Silver Hills Bakery. Silver Hills makes the most delicious sprouted grain bread made from simple ingredients, which I have been eating for over a decade. Sprouting helps unlock the nutrition in organic whole grains, increasing vitamin and mineral content, and the higher protein and fiber in Silver Hills breads means your next sandwich will help you feel full satisfied, and energized for all that life has waiting for you. Check out silverhillsbakery.ca to find a store near you, or my American friends can also purchase online at theovendoor.co. Now let's dive into the conversation with Andrea Hardy. So I feel like the first thing I want to ask you is like, where did your fascination with gut health begin? Yeah. So I would say my fascination with gut health probably began with my own struggle with irritable bowel syndrome. And so I developed IBS after I got Norwalk University. Pretty sure I got post-infectious IBS, although stress was probably a big contributor to that as well. And, uh, it took a really long time to get a diagnosis. And when I got that diagnosis, I was like, Oh, you know, people are going to think I'm crazy. IBS is something that's all in your head. And so even back then there was that pervasive belief as a dietetic intern that, you know, my disease wasn't real. And so that kind of began my interest in digestive health. I was interested in, you know, how could I manage? How could I feel better? Uh, And frankly, I was also interested in, could there be something else wrong with me? Because is this even real? And so it kind of led me down this path of really diving into the research, understanding IBS, growing with the growth of literature that's happened over the last 15 years. And, uh, from there, I also had positions that were really gut health focused. I worked in oncology, which you wouldn't think is so digestive health focused, but, uh, if you've had cancer or known someone that's had cancer, uh, gut issues just go hand in hand with treatments and, uh, even post-treatment. So I became very, very immersed in how to manage digestive issues there. Um, I learned a lot through some of my other positions. And when I had the opportunity to start a private practice, I knew I wanted to work with digestive patients. And I think too, you know, so few dietitians were engaging in this topic, like even like a decade ago, I remember like there were so, Mm -hmm. there was like Kate Scarlatta (laughs) Mm -hmm. and like Patsy Katzos and like, that's it, you know? And it's, it was definitely as a dietitian, I, I was having this conversation with some dietetic students and, you know, in our profession, we are taught not to be wrong. You know, I feel like that's a big part of our culture. Like, don't you dare be wrong. And so like mm-hmm. to jump into an area like this can be a little nerve wracking for someone who does the work that we do. Cause like, oh, what if we're wrong, but people needed it. Right. And 
I love, so you were already in dietetics when you um, were diagnosed with IBS because I was wondering if that was part of what led you to dietetics, but it wasn't. So, cause I always like to ask dietitians because it's so not a career that most six-year-olds know about. Like, when did you know that you wanted to be a dietitian? Like, how did you find out what a dietitian even was? Yeah. So funny enough, uh, my friend's daughter was kind of making fun of us the other day, but she was like, you guys didn't even have personal computers back in the day. I remember going to the guidance counselor and going on the big computer and taking a test to see what careers I might fit well into. And nurse came up, physiotherapist came up and dietitian came up. And I was like, what is a dietitian? I had no idea. And I read about it and I was like, oh my goodness, this sounds way better than all these other helping professions. Uh, I was a competitive gymnast at the time and I knew I wanted to do something or I thought I wanted to do something uh, with sport and wellness, but I didn't have a good sense of what that something might be. And so I feel really lucky that I was even showing an option like dietetics at 16 years old because I had no idea it existed. That's amazing. I had no idea it existed till I hit UBC. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't, right? You see yeah. those career trajectories where somebody starts in a program and then they're like, oh, there's there's other things out there. And then they switch. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so you are the second person that I've talked to who said it was like a career counseling situation where they're like, you know what? We think you could be a good dietitian. They're like, what? <laughs> that is so awesome. Um, yeah. So you have, from that very auspicious day, become one of the leading voices in digestive health. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about like the everyday gut stuff that pops into our lives, because I think there is so much confusion, A, like it's something that people feel really weird talking about a lot of the times. There's still so much stigma involved in like, oh, dude, I'm really gassy. Um, to, you know, there's also so much misinformation because I feel like with this kind of stuff, the first thing someone does is sort of go on the internet and start Googling it. And there's so much misinformation. So I'm really excited to hopefully like bust some myths and like give the actual like, good. So people never have to go searching for like bad information again on this. And so I thought we should start probably by talking about bloating because it's so common and because it's such a hot topic. So can you share like, what is bloating and what causes bloating? Sure. So in terms of bloating, bloating is um, the feeling of distension or sorry, the feeling of pressure in your gut. And so it can be really uncomfortable. It can make you feel full. It can cause pain. Uh, and then there's also distension, which is the visible expansion of your gut. So you can feel bloated without being distended. Um, and then usually distension and bloating go hand in hand. Uh, and so in terms of causes, there's lots of different causes for bloating. Uh, some causes can be something like constipation where you're backed up and you get bloated from that. So if you haven't had a bowel movement in three days or have experienced that before, you probably know what bloating feels like. Cause you're starting to be like, huh, I'm really full. I'm uncomfortable. Uh, bloating can occur from uh, gas production in the gut whether that's upper or lower, you can build up gas in different places in your gut and that can contribute to that feeling of bloating. Uh, something that we think about when we think about IBS is when water gets pulled into your gut from certain foods, that can cause bloating. And then, you know, I think it's also important to point out that throughout the day, our abdomens naturally expand. Most of us wake up with a flatter tummy than we go to bed with. And then as we eat, as our digestive tract goes to work, it naturally is going to expand. And that's okay. That's normal. It's when there's pain associated with that and discomfort and it's causing you issues that maybe we want to take a look at some strategies to manage. So those are kind of the, the big contributors. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like it's so important for people to hear this because 
it's co- it's a common misconception that bloating is like one thing, like one thing is causing your bloat. And even the idea, like, as you said, like for it to develop over the day, and maybe you were wearing a nice loose flowy dress and you don't notice it that much. Maybe you were wearing hard pants for the first time in a long time. And you're like, what is this horribleness? Um, so to get this sense that you, you really do need to sort of be curious about what's going on completely in your body. And it's rarely just like, oh, I ate this one thing. And so now I'm bloated. And like, that's, that's all I need to know. I, how do we, you know, if, if we're getting the sense that bloating is really a thing for us, like it's not just like an occasional thing, like how do we know that bloating is within sort of the normal realm of the, oh yeah, you know, everything's just sort of slowing down as the day goes on, or, you know, um, maybe there's something more going on. Yeah. So I would say it's really individual and it depends on how frequent it is and how um, uncomfortable you might be with the bloating. So if bloating is uh, contributing to reflux or abdominal pain, or you're finding that like, Hey, I'm constipated and I'm just feeling bloated all the time and not able to get my typical nutrition in, uh, those are kind of signs that there's probably some things that we could do to help manage that. Uh, I would also say when you become a little bit more fixated on it or distracted by it, it's taking up too much space in your mind, that's a sign that maybe it's uh, something that you want looked at or discussed. Um And I suggest not jumping in to try to manage it by yourself because what happens typically is, is you just end up more and more fixated on it. You notice it more and it it just kind of creates that self-fulfilling prophecy of like, I might be getting bloated. And then you're like, oh, I'm definitely bloated. What did I do wrong? What did I eat? What do I have to micromanage? Then all of a sudden your, your whole life revolves around your bloating. So um, if it's distracting you or distressing you, make sure you talk with your dietitian or doctor. Yeah. And I love that I love that you went there because I think one of the biggest challenges in managing our health, particularly these days, is that we can start sort of doom scrolling, you know, all of our potential diagnoses and all of our potential ways that we can quote unquote fix this. Um and it is more often something we feel like we're go we need to go alone as opposed to actually seeking help like the amount of times someone has come to me for um counseling and i've said have you seen your doctor about this and the answer is no you know and they've been dealing with it for years trying to like figure out like whatever detox or whatever diet or like whatever supplement for years online and they haven't actually gone to their doctor like something is wrong like help me figure this out. Right. I I would say too, just adding to that is I see a lot of problematic sharing on social media of bloating. And so patients feel like they identify with this person that's like, look at my belly, there's something wrong. And so then they gather information from that influencer or person on managing their bloating, but they don't actually understand what is the underlying driver of their bloating? Is it something else entirely? Is it something easy to manage or fix? And they end up going down this rabbit hole of all of these different management options. And they come to us and they're like, you know, I've been trying X, Y, and Z. I've tried everything for the last two, three, four years and nothing works. And so that's really a sign that, you know, we could have talked with the doctor earlier. We could have gotten in touch with somebody that knows how to manage this earlier rather than just gathering information off of social media. Have you seen it like in the last week, there was an influencer that just went viral on TikTok for normalizing bloating. The idea is that she showed her body before she ate and after she ate. And there's like a really dramatic difference. Did you see that? I didn't, but I'm going to have to take a look because I think it's helpful to understand that your, your stomach's meant to expand, but it's doing exactly what it needs to do. And, uh, all those pictures that posted as problematic, 
are are making us pathologize something that maybe doesn't actually need to be pathologized or isn't an issue. Yeah. And, and I feel like we're really good at doing that, uh, online and particularly in online quote unquote wellness. And I, you know, one of the things that I love about the internet is that people who didn't have a voice, people who didn't feel empowered or had the right tools or language to speak with their physicians about these things can go online, can learn about, you know, what potentially might be going on for them and then come sort of armed with that information. That can be really empowering, but then the opposite is also true. You know, wellness seems like it is creating this world where like nothing is ever supposed to happen. Like we're always supposed to have quote unquote, the perfect poop and like never be gassy and never be bloated, which is absolutely ludicrous. Like it's impossible. Like bodies change, bodies go through things. And it's, I find that so frustrating because in some ways, people who have not taken their symptoms seriously need to know that they should and that they should seek support. But then on the other hand, we now also have this group who thinks that there's something wrong with them. And they're kind of like putting themselves through all manner of ridiculous regimes when actually they're completely within the realm of like healthy and normal. It's like both sides now. Mm -hmm. That hypervigilance can be really scary and really consuming for people and can develop a lot of really dangerous behaviors, whether that's uh, dieting or restriction or fixation. And it, it just takes up way too much space in people's minds. Like if you're thinking about your bloat all day, every day, every bite of food you put in your mouth to the clothes you wear, it's, it's probably taking joy from other areas of your life. So definitely something to think about. So in the realm of normal, like let, let's talk poop. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, My everyone, topic. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like what goes in, what comes out, like that's the thing. Um, so everybody gets constipated from time to time, again, completely within the realm of normal. Um, so if it's just a blip, like if this is just a momentary lapse, like how do you recommend we get things moving again? Mm-hmm. So uh, constipation, like you said, can happen. It happens to all of us at times. Um, And so in terms of getting things moving again, uh, I like to focus on fluid, fiber, and movement. Usually something's gone off from that perspective that's caused our bowels to slow down a bit, whether that's, you know, uh, going on a vacation and eating totally differently, uh, to being more sedentary because maybe it's been raining outside for a week and you haven't had a chance to get out. Uh, so getting back to the basics is really important. We want to make sure we're getting enough fluid. So it's about eight to 10 cups of fluid a day for most individuals. Uh, We want to make sure we're getting enough fiber. So that's about 25 to 38 grams of fiber for most individuals and then movement. So if we can get, get in at least 30 minutes of gentle movement a day, that's a great place to start. We have a really good uh, constipation smoothie recipe on our blog that works like magic. Uh, So make sure I send you the link for that, for this show notes just on ignitenutrition.ca and it's called the bye-bye constipation smoothie, but it pulls in some really great uh, principles to help laxation. And so certain foods are really good at stimulating our bowels. For example, everybody knows prunes stimulate our bowels. So uh, prunes can be a really great option to include. Uh, this smoothie contains things like kiwi and avocado and blackberry, uh, which all have ability to pull water into our bowels and soften our stools. Other great things to include would be things like ground flax or bran, because they're also really good at stimulating our bowels and reducing transit time or the time it takes for something to move from your mouth all the way out. Um, and so those sorts of foods can be really great to include to kind of get your bowels moving again. I love that. A constipation smoothie. I would, I, I would drink a constipation smoothie. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. That's so cool. so, I definitely two days in a row and you're like, Oh, all better. So, <laughs> so we are definitely going to put that one in the show notes. So watch for it. Um, what if constipation isn't a blip? 
Like, what if it's been going yeah. on for a while? Like, like how, how do we approach that? Like, what are we looking for? For sure. So if it's been going on for uh, a couple of months, definitely talk with your doctor first. Usually constipation is benign, but like we had mentioned, we don't want to be missing something. And so that big something when it comes to constipation is colorectal cancer. And so if you have risk factors like age or family history, and all of a sudden your bowels have changed and you're constipated all of the time, you definitely want to ensure that your doctors screened you, made sure you're either not at risk or if you do have risk factors that you get the proper test done. Uh, because I want to make sure that that's not missed in the desire to just figure it out ourselves. Uh, so once you've been green lighted by your doctor to kind of proceed with other strategies for management, I always like food first management strategies. And so that ties back to the things that we talked about for occasional constipation management. So fiber, fluid, and movement. If that's not sufficient, uh, there's definitely a lot of different strategies that we can use to help kind of get things moving. So uh, dietitians are really good at picking out particular fibers that can stimulate your bowels or reducing your intake of really high fat foods, which can slow your bowels down. Um, meal timing and spacing can play an influence because when you eat, your bowels are stimulated to move or create motility. And so strategically planning your meals and snacks or making sure that we have regular meals and snacks can stimulate your bowels. So we have some food strategies there. There's also behavioral strategies, something I don't think people talk about enough. So this is uh, toileting behaviors. And so this can include something like a squatty potty. Uh, so if you don't know what a squatty potty is, it's essentially a stool that you put your feet on uh, to make sure that your uh, rectum is positioned properly to be able to easily pass a bowel movement. And so if your stools are getting harder, you have to push harder, it's harder to pass. And so positioning can really help to make that a bit easier and allow you to pass those stools. When your knees are above your hips, your pelvic floor can relax and stool can evacuate properly. I see a lot of times people end up saying that they have, you know, small bowel movements and they feel constipated, but they're having these small bowel movements every day. That's a sign that they're incompletely evacuated and positioning might be helpful and softening might be helpful too. And many people, uh, I was just going to say, because many people don't realize, most people think of constipation as not going at all. And people often don't realize that you can technically be constipated even if you are having a bowel movement every day. Absolutely. Even if you experience occasional diarrhea, you can be constipated. Uh, that's called overflow diarrhea. So the stool in your colon is hardened so much, but your body's trying to evacuate that. So you get this soft, watery stool that moves around the hard stool. And you might have this happen. Usually patients have it happen occasionally. Um, and then followed by maybe some harder pieces. Um, and so constipation can look really different for people. So you need somebody to kind of sleuth that out with you. Um, because being full of stool can be really uncomfortable and contribute to a lot of a lot of uncomfortable symptoms. I want to like shift to speak about like IBSC for a second, because one of the things that I've noticed in my practice, um, and I had this like spate a couple of years ago, just like multiple clients coming to me with a diagnosis of constipation predominant IBS. Um, and really they were just super, super constipated. Like when we use these basic strategies, when we talked about fiber, um, when we talked about movement, when we talked about water, like within a couple of months, like all of them were so much better. Um, mm -hmm. but then we do have constipation predominant IBS, which is a very different thing. You know, clients who are eating all the fiber, drinking all the water, moving their bodies, and they're still constipated. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I like to say that uh, IBSC and uh, chronic constipation is a spectrum. So over with IBSC, we have pain as the predominant feature, 
chronic constipation pain isn't the predominant feature, but like you mentioned, when we resolve the constipation, the person no longer fits the diagnostic criteria for IBSC anymore. So a lot of times simply it's managing constipation. However, if that is not adequate, you know, and you're still experiencing pain as the predominant feature, you can still fit in with that IBSC category. And so from that perspective, we might've tried the food things. We might've tried the behavioral things and there's still something else going on. A lot of times that can be pelvic floor related. So your pelvic floor is responsible for coordinating uh, a bowel movement. And if your pelvic floor isn't working properly, you're often have difficulties passing that bowel movement. Most people think of pelvic floor issues as issues that are just female issues or that you've had to have kids to have pelvic floor dysfunction, but everybody could have pelvic floor dysfunction. In fact, three in 10 men and seven in 10 women have some sort of imbalance in their pelvic floor. And usually it's too tight. If it's too tight, you can't relax and pass the stool. So looping in a physiotherapist to make sure your pelvic floor is functioning properly can be really important. Uh, the other piece of things can be uh, slow motility. So some people's guts move slower than others. And so there's different food ways we can manage that. There's different medication ways we can manage that. And then lastly, some people have a really loopy or redundant colon and your colon's primary job is to reabsorb water. And so if you have extra loops or it's extra long, um, your colon's too good at reabsorbing water. And so we need some strategies to make sure that that stool stays soft. And so that's where medication can be really helpful. I think a lot of times there's a lot of stigma around medication and we want so badly for food to work. And I ideally would love to just use food, but if it's not working for you, if it's inadequate, these medications can really get us on the right path. And there's nothing to say we can't reevaluate that in three months, in six months, in a year, and try again to see, you know, do I still need this? Um, I think a lot of times patients are very surprised at and relieved at how well medications can be incorporated into constipation or IBS management. And they often say, you know, why didn't I try this before? So um, making sure you talk with your dietitian and doctor about the different options and the risks and benefits of each. A lot of times the risks are quite low. And then sometimes with certain medications, they're a little bit different. So you want to make sure that you understand what they do, how they work, and the risks and benefits of them. Awesome. Thank you for that. And I think it is so important because I think oftentimes when we talk about food, particularly in a, like a wellness and well-being context, the idea is, you know, many people would rather just quote unquote, take a pill and they don't turn to food for, you know, support. But the opposite can also be true. This idea that somehow taking this medication means that they didn't do quote unquote well enough. And it's like, no, sometimes there are things that nutrition is really, really great at. And there are others that it just, it, it can't do a thing. And so knowing that you have everything in your toolkit is really important. Absolutely. I think that's such an important message is medications don't mean you failed. We just need that additional layer of support to get you feeling comfortable and get you feeling good. So let's flip the switch a little bit on the opposite end of the digestive tract, because another really huge problem for many people is reflux or um, gastroesophageal reflux disease, which always weirds me out when I see gourd from the UK. I'm like, it's gourd. It's gourd. We call it gourd. And then I see gourd. And I was like, that is something else entirely. Um, but I digress. So can you teach us what reflux is and why does it happen on just like sort of like a normal scale? Yeah. So reflux or heartburn is the um, splashing up of acid from the stomach into the esophagus. And so this can happen if the valve between your stomach and esophagus isn't, um, isn't as strong as it should be, or is a little bit loose or doesn't close properly. 
pressure can be a big contributor. So the more pressure you have in your digestive tract, the more likely that valve is to open. Um, and then another cause would be if you have like an esophageal hernia that might cause the valve to not work properly too. And so GERD or reflux is really different than like just burning in the stomach or just pressure in the stomach. It's that splashing up into your esophagus that causes that burning or that discomfort. You can have non-acidic reflux too. So people that uh, wake up maybe with like a bit of a sore throat or a lot of post-nasal drip. You could be experiencing reflux in the night and not have that traditional like heartburn, chest pressure, burning sensation. You just might notice those symptoms a little bit more mild or delayed or a little bit differently. So that's definitely something to consider too. Yeah. And particularly as we get older, you know, we become less, less sensitive to that sensation too. And like, not only is the valve going to get floppier, but like we don't see it as much. So I think a lot of people can have that hoarseness and like not even know where it's coming from at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They think it's allergies. I know right now being pregnant, uh, my reflux is not spectacular. Uh, it's managed as best as possible. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh, my throat's a bit sore, I'm congested, and I know I've been essentially regurgitating all night long. So um, yeah, those symptoms can look really different for people. So I see a lot of people end up on allergy medication or um, you know, they get referrals to an ENT, you know, throat specialist, because they're like, why is my nose always dripping into the back of my throat? But a lot of times it's it can be caused by reflux. I think we should talk about this because I think that um, women don't always get a lot of information about the myriad of changes that happen to a body in pregnancy. So how does pregnancy affect digestion? Yes, I feel like now being through almost my whole third trimester, I've experienced the whole gamut. Um, So uh, there's a lot of different ways in which pregnancy affects digestion. And so hormones play a big role in that. As you're pregnant, your estrogen and progesterone goes up, uh, which can actually help to reduce pain sensitivity. So I have IBS and my IBS pain-wise has been fantastic most of my pregnancy. And it's been awesome. Uh, I, I love that part of it. I'm like, oh, my guts never really hurt. This is so different than what I'm used to experiencing. So that's been a bonus. Uh, but the more challenging side of pregnancy tends to be with some of those hormonal changes that cause more symptoms. So um, the big one is a hormone uh, called relaxin. And relaxin essentially can relax muscles, including our smooth muscles, which is what our gut's made out of. And it can slow how quickly our gut empties. It can slow our bowels down and it can relax those muscles that are supposed to be a bit tighter. Mechanically speaking too, babies taking up more and more space, causing more and more intra-abdominal pressure on the gut, which puts more pressure on that valve between your stomach and esophagus. And so reflux can become really common and constipation can become really common. And from a reflux perspective in terms of management, you're also growing at the same time. So clothing can play a really big role. Um, your How your bra fits, how your pants fit, uh, making sure that you're wearing comfortable clothing can make a huge impact in how you perceive your reflux and your abdominal discomfort or constipation with pregnancy. So there's quite a lot of factors there that that can make you not feel so great when you're pregnant. And for reflux in pregnancy, what are some of the the ways you find really supportive of managing those symptoms? Yeah. So the typical reflux stuff can be helpful. So that's reducing acidic food, spicy food, caffeine, uh, chocolate. Um, what am I missing there? Acidic, spicy, caffeine, chocolate, um, fatty foods, uh, peppermint, uh, all of those things can contribute to reflux by way of, uh, increasing, um, 
increasing some of that relaxation that occurs in the gut or increasing acid production. So limiting those things is a great place to start. Uh, Balanced meals and snacks is really important too. So making sure if you're able, feeling well enough, getting in that good nutrition can really help to keep things moving. Uh, Managing constipation. The more constipated you're going to get, the more pressure you're going to have in your abdomen and the more reflux you might experience. So tackling constipation can be really important. And uh, we mentioned clothing already. Uh, Making sure you have a wedge pillow can be really helpful so you don't get that that morning mucus uh, or burning in your throat or esophagus. Uh, So you can buy wedge pillows quite easily and that way it props you up to about 30 to 45 degrees and that can significantly help. Um, And then not being afraid of asking your doctor about medication. I see uh, a lot of women can use over-the-counter stuff, which is great. So things like Tums or Gaviscon, but there's a limit to how much you're allowed to take in pregnancy and it's not very much. Uh, I I feel like I could take half a bottle of Gaviscon and it would barely touch my reflux. So um, if you're taking those over-the-counter medications as recommended by your doctor and you're still not getting symptom relief, prescription medications can be really helpful too. Because you want to make sure that you're feeling well enough to get good nutrition during pregnancy. And if you're constantly battling reflux, it's going to really reduce your ability to eat enough. Yeah. And that's, I remember particularly late in pregnancies, that's such, you already feel so full with baby and there's so much upward pressure from the baby. You'd be like, I am hungry and I am full at the same time. (laughs) It is, the struggle is real. I'm always hungry and full and I'm like, I just want to eat really badly, but there's no room. So I've gotten good at grazing slowly. Yeah. You know, there's one of the things that I, I feel like I'm most fascinated by at this point in my career is just how the body is constantly evolving and changing and responding to changes in your life or in the environment. Like I just, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. And I think one of the biggest things with respect to digestive health in terms of these changes is like so many of us are experiencing digestive health issues, whether whether it's something like reflux or whether it's like full-blown IBS, but even, you know, rates of IBD are increasing as well. Like, like what's your take based on, you know, the evidence and the conversation from, you know, like other physicians and researchers on like why digestive health is such a massive issue these days. I mean, aside from the pathologizing wellness community, like what's the real take on like, why are our guts just losing their minds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is so interesting. So one of my big areas of interest is the gut microbiome. And what research is showing is specifically in our westernized culture, we've lost a lot of microbial niches that exist in places where they don't have these chronic and autoimmune conditions in the same way or not at all. So when we compare uh, people that live quite traditionally to people that live in Western culture, we see that we're missing so many different niches of microbes. And so it's been speculated that these changes that have occurred in the gut microbiome over a period of time are possibly contributing to development of disease. And we can see that in animal research. It's very clear when we when we um, take these different microbiomes from different populations and implant them in the mice, some mice are more prone to developing things like IBD, things like asthma, things like eczema, when they have more of that westernized microbiome. And so we know it's causal, but then the question is, is what do we actually do about it? Because we've almost made these bacteria extinct in our guts, essentially. So it's not like you can go pick them up, take a probiotic and expect these um, bacteria to take up this this niche that we're missing. And so researchers are working really hard to look at what are the options here. Some, In some cases, 
There's some really cool research being done on uh, fecal microbiota transplants where they kind of wipe your microbiome out with antibiotics and then replace it with a healthier microbiome, essentially. And that's been shown to induce remission in patients with IBD. And I think we're going to see that with other conditions as well as we dive deeper into the research. So uh, the microbiome plays a role. And so things that have changed our microbiome of our is food, food, our diets have significantly changed. Um, our environment has significantly changed. So uh, environmental pollutants, things that maybe we wouldn't even think of, like uh, more forest fire smoke, um, you know, more pollution from cars, those sorts of things have the potential to influence our microbiome. Um, other things as well that I don't think we talk enough about is stress. And so I think stress is a huge driver of these, of these changes too. So it's not as simple as this one bacteria is missing and that's the cause it's okay. This happened plus this plus the stress. And that's what, that's what caused the changes. So stress is definitely a big one. And people, I think, in addition to sort of underestimating the effect that stress has on our guts, um, we also greatly underestimate how stressed we are at any one given moment because we're just like we're living this ultra high octane life where we're constantly attached to screens, constantly responsive. And we've normalized that because that's just how life is now. And it's not until you find that moment, like maybe you go on a vacation and like day five, you know, you you left your phone and you've just been at the beach all day and you realize, oh, oh, this is what it means to not be overstimulated and stressed out. Like we really do sort of underestimate it. And I, I would see that in our clients all the time because I always ask, you know, stress on the intake forms and, and people would respond, oh, stress is like a four out of 10. And Yet they work 65 hours a week and they've also been like building a house from scratch at the same time. And you're like, oh, we're not stressed. Hey, a four out of 10. It's like, because we're so consciously so good at handling it, but we forget that the body experiences it on like a subconscious level that we just don't even understand. Absolutely. So there's changes in our nervous system. There's changes in our gut microbiome. Uh, there's changes in our stress hormones. There's changes in our sleep hormones. There's just so many changes that occur with like what I call healthy stress or sorry, um, positive stress. Uh, cause people usually think of stressors as negative, like something awful has happened, but this, this positive stress of, well, I like my job, but I'm working 60 hours a week. That's still a, a form of stress. So, uh, I don't think people consider that enough. So what would you recommend if we, if everyone listening to this and, you know, saying that we don't have, we don't have, you know, IBS, we don't have IBD, we're just like free living, generally like well people, what would you recommend as the three things that we could all do to foster better gut health? Yeah. So my first two tips are around nutrition. And so my first tip is specifically around intentionally getting in enough vegetables, because that is where I'm sure you agree, Desiree, where people consistently fall short. And so if we can aim for that half a plate of veggies, I know this tip is out there. It's what Canada's food guide looks like. It sounds really simple. But if we get in that half a plate of veggies at lunch and supper every day, then we know we're intentionally including the right kinds of foods for the microbes that you have in your gut. And so that's a really easy visual way to say, okay, what's going to be my my half a plate of veggies every single day at lunch and supper? My second tip is around variety. And so I like to say your gut microbes are picky eaters. Different microbes like to snack on different fibers. And so we want to get as much dietary variety as possible. One study looked at uh, dietary variety and found that those that had at least 30 different plant-based foods a week had a more diverse microbiome uh, than those that only got 10. 
And so while we don't have good research to say, if you have these 30 different plant-based foods a week, your gut microbiome is going to be fantastic. Uh, we do know from lots of different studies that those microbes are picky eaters. So I like to say 30 is a good number to aim for. And 30 sometimes sounds like a lot to people, but we want to make sure that we're counting our fruits and veggies, but also our pulses, so our beans, peas, and lentils, our whole grains, our nuts and seeds. And so all of those little things can add up. And when we're intentional about it, a lot of times it's it's not as challenging as we think to hit that 30. It's going to challenge you a bit, but it's you, you'll be surprised at how simple it is. It's also a fun one to do with families too. Yeah, and because it's, and I love because so much of nutrition is thought of, you know, outside people who are talking to dietitians as restrictive, right? It's restrictive. It's a list of no's. Um, it's counting everything, you know, like what are your, what are your, you know, fat grams? What are your calories? And this is a really fun sort of positive way that you can add a little bit of play. Like you just have a chart, you have a chart with a family and you're like, okay, we got stickers. And every time we eat a different plant food, we're going to add a sticker and it's 30 a week. You're right. It seems like a lot, but then just a basic oatmeal. If you have some oatmeal with some blueberries and some hemp hearts, like that's already just three, a really simple meal. And that's already three. And like you, you've, you've done it. You've got like 10%, like 10% and it's only one meal in the week. So it, it really can be done. I love that advice. Yeah. And then my last tip is actually around stress. And so my big tip around stress is for people to take 15 minutes a day with yourself because when's the last time you spent any time with just yourself uh i don't have a child yet but what i do i'm sure that will be trickier uh but the goal is is to get away from technology work distraction and really just spend time in your body and so you might go for a walk or you might meditate, or you might do some stretching, or you might do some movement, just something to help to ease the load of uh, sympathetic activation. Because, you know, we have our phones, we have our emails, I just had a calendar reminder pop in, there's all of these things constantly stimulating us that our, our nervous system has to cope and handle with. I want all of that taken away for a minute. And I want people to just kind of sit with their bodies for a bit. And uh, that can help to kind of activate what we call our parasympathetic nervous system or our rest and digest mode. And so if we're able to even give ourselves just a piece of the day, just 15 minutes um, consistently, then we're at least getting out of that, that stressful behavior for a bit. That's so helpful. And I think hearing this advice I so often people are looking for something that sounds complicated or exotic and and we do sort of underestimate and undervalue the like impact of like basic foundational things but it is those things applied consistently that move the needle more than like anything else we do sporadically. Um I want to ask quickly about a couple of supplements because they're really hot topics. So yeah. probiotics, yay or nay? Yeah. Yeah. So probiotics, it depends. Uh, I always say with probiotics, we want to match the right strain to the right person for the right reason. And so probiotics are kind of like drugs. They have a therapeutic benefit. Uh, they do lots of really great things in our body. They can promote populations of beneficial bacteria. They digest things we can't, and they can produce beneficial compounds. And uh, by way of research, we see that specific strains can benefit specific conditions, whether that's IBS or whether that's reducing uh, recurrent yeast infections or antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Uh, there's different therapeutic applications for different probiotics. So um, talking with your pharmacist, doctor, or dietitian, if you're interested in taking one and you want to know, is there evidence for this? then that's definitely the way to go. Now, what about L-glutamine? Yeah, so L-glutamine is interesting. It's promising, but it's overhyped, I would say. And 
of course, everything is distilled down to these really simple messages. A lot of times, like everybody needs to take glutamine for their gut barrier function because everybody has issues with leaky gut. Uh, that's not the reality. And so in terms of research around L-glutamine, I actually had done a like full systematic review on glutamine and uh, stem cell transplant way back when I worked in oncology. And so these are patients that have really, um, really compromised gut barriers because of really high amounts of chemotherapy. And so those patients possibly benefited from glutamine because they were poorly nourished and they had something really affecting their immune system and really impacting their gut. So that's, for example, a population that might benefit from L-glutamine in a very specific scenario. Um, There's a bit of evidence around patients in ICUs specifically that have really severe burns that do fantastic with the addition of glutamine. And then there's like this this up and coming research around uh, glutamine and digestive disorders. Uh, We see some research in IBS, for example, Um, and potentially glutamine does have the ability to uh, improve gut barrier function slightly or some markers of gut barrier function. Uh, However, the gut barrier, again, has to be significantly compromised. So post-infection, immediately post-infection, if you picked up the gastroenteritis, that may be a place for it. Uh, If you have active uh, IBD, uh, that might be a place for it. But a lot of this research right now is in animals or in really small human studies. So it's really promising, but do we need to pick up a glutamine supplement off the shelf and start taking it every day? Probably not. We get a lot of glutamine from our food because it is a building block. It's an amino acid. So we can get a lot of that already if we're getting a well-nourished diet. Um, A lot of these patients that we're looking at are are not getting good nutrition. So um, just some things to think about. Is it going to do harm? No. Is it going to cost you some money? Yes. Is it going to benefit? I'm not really convinced it's it's appropriate for everybody at this point. Yeah. And I think it's good because to hear that because it is something that's usually on the top, like as a top recommendation from a lot of people and it is expensive. Yeah. And there are so many other things that mm-hmm. I would do first. Again, if people Absolutely. have huge budgets and they want to also tackle the nutrition and take out glutamine, it's like, if this fits in your budget, okay, it's not going to be harmful, but it is, it's definitely not what I would recommend before doing like everything else first. So yeah, I love that. Thank you for that. I want to, yeah. I want to close, we're going to do some rapid fire questions, but I want to close uh, with this question. Um, So often in digestive health, people are suffering and they've been suffering for a long time um, and they're still not finding the answers. They're not finding the strategies that work for them. So any advice for folks who have something going on with their gut, but they're having a hard time getting to the bottom of it with their docs? Like what do they do if you know, the tests are clear they don't have Crohn's disease, (laughs) like nothing else seems to fit. Yeah. So, you know, a bit of a biased answer, but definitely consider working with a dietitian because the reality is, and research shows that a team-based approach to managing digestive disorders uh, gets people results quicker. So Dr. William Che has some fantastic research to show that a team of a gastroenterologist, dietitian, GI psychologist, physiotherapist, I know they had a few others, I think pharmacists, when they all worked together, patients got symptom relief way faster. And that's because we each bring something different to the table. And so specifically, dietitians are really good at taking a look at uh, nutrition and lifestyle and what we can do to help manage uh, a condition that might be a little bit different than what your doctor can offer. We're really the experts in nutrition. So you might have gotten, you know, try the low FODMAP diet, but you didn't really get the specifics on what you should be doing based on how you live, what you eat, what your symptoms are. So 
really kind of work at seeing what's realistic to kind of build out that healthcare team yourself. That's a great place to start. And, you know, it's so important to consider nutrition. And I think often like people will come to us and they've seen everybody else, like literally everybody else, like including a dog walker before they see the dietitian. It's like, <laughs> see us sooner. We can help. We really can. And if we can't, good chances are we have some great people we can refer to that are going to be a good fit. I had no fantastic uh, gut directed hypnotherapists. I know fantastic psychologists. I know fantastic pelvic floor physios. And so we get the luxury here in Canada of spending a lot of time with our patients. Doctors are funded way for way less time with their patients in Canada. Whereas you and I, Desiree, are in private practice. We get a full hour. Well, I get a full hour with my patients. So I, a lot of times, get to know their case a lot more intimately and communicate that back to the doctor to say, hey, this is what I think is going on. What about this, this, and this? Have we thought of this? And then the team approach, the doctor's like, oh, thank goodness. These are some great ideas. Let's, let's go ahead and take a look at them. Love that. All right. I close every episode with some rapid fire questions that are a secret to the guest, but they're softballs. They're, they're real. They're real simple ones. Um, if you were a dietitian, you would be. I would like to be a professional golfer, but I'm not quite good enough. But if I were good enough, that's what I would do. <laughs> I love that. I love golfing. That's amazing. I love that. Um, fiction or nonfiction? fiction. I'm really bad at reading nonfiction. I love reading fiction. I read about 30 books a year. I, I love it. Although I am listening to Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential right now as an audiobook, which is nonfiction. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I love, yeah, that's a fantastic one. I, I also, because I spend so much of my life in nonfiction, I really love fiction. Like that's my jam. And I feel like team fiction is like, shrinking. So I've been asking more and more people and I'm like more people say nonfiction than fiction. So we're on the same page. Uh, the kitchen tool you can't live without. I would say my blender. I use, especially during pregnancy, anything that empties from my gut quickly. Uh, I've been having a lot of smoothies, uh, anything like uh, emulsified, like soups that are going to empty from my gut quick. Uh, that's, that's what I've been rolling with. So my blender. Love it. Favorite way to get more fiber? Ooh, I am currently really attached to, I'm using hemp seeds a lot in things. Uh, I don't know. I just have been really into putting it in smoothies and oatmeal and uh, what else? Yogurt and that sort of stuff. But I feel like it changes. I go on these like food jags. So like if you would have asked me, a couple of weeks ago, it would have been prunes. And then a few weeks before that, it would have been sprouted grain bread with peanut butter and banana. So uh, yeah, right now, hemp seeds are kind of going into everything. I'm exactly the same way. I like go on something for like weeks and then I'm like, no, no more. Um, <laughs> the final and most important question of the episode, clearly, chips or ice cream? Ooh, ice cream during pregnancy for sure. Um I love it so much. I've been eating it so often, but it definitely doesn't help my reflux. <laughs> so, but it's so good. Everything dairy right now is just like milk, yogurt, ice cream. So yeah. The baby wants what it wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just here to listen. So Oh, thank you so much, Andrea. I know that people are going to learn so much from you. We're constantly thinking about gut health. And uh, I think often we have more confusion than answers. So yeah, we've learned a lot from you. It's really going to help. So thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on baby arriving. Thank so you. very exciting. soon. So yeah. yeah, stay tuned. Enjoy it. It's a wild ride. I hope that this episode gave you some food for thought, and I really appreciate Andrea's work in normalizing fluctuations in gut function and in taking medications when you need them. I have always been an advocate for a food-first approach because for years what I saw was docs saying that food doesn't matter. Here. 
take this pill. But I think the downside of that messaging is that people get the false sense that you can fix 100% of things with just food. So you feel like a failure if you take meds, which is so not the case. If you take one thing from this episode, I hope it's that you take your gut health seriously. But also, make sure that you get properly checked out by a doctor and then see a dietitian who can help create an individualized treatment plan to help you feel your best, free of fear-mongering and pseudoscience. We'll see you on the next pod. Be well, friends. 